Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. All who are able, we invite you to stand for our first lesson. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But a man named Ananias, with his consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it to the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep, keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. And, a, and young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Once again, those who are able are invited to stand for our second lesson. We continue in the fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts. We'll pick up with verse 12. Did you hear what happened in the first 11 verses? Wow. This is serious business. Let's attend to God's powerful and living word. In the twelfth verse, Many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women. Moving down to verse 17, after continued healings of those who were sick and afflicted, takes place, the high priests took action. He and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This is not the first nor the last time that the apostles will be put into prison for preaching in the name of Jesus. 
And so they are placed there, and an angel releases them from prison. And where do they go? They go right back into the temple, preaching in the name of Jesus. And when they go to find the apostles to bring them before the council, they're not there. Well, we put them in there, but they're not there anymore. Where are they? They're in the temple. So they go and they find them there in the temple and bring them before the council. And when they had brought them, they had them stand before the council, verse 27. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood upon us. But, Pete, but, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and his leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And then he said to them, Fellow Israelites, consider very carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last week, we heard a sermon on Acts chapter 4. It dealt with the undeniable evidence of the presence of God. Nathan told us a story of an interesting journey that he took at an earlier period in his life, a journey through cold water up a stream to a hidden waterfall, and it was beautiful and undeniable that it was part of God's handiwork. In a similar fashion, last Sunday, Jeannie, my wife, and I took an interesting journey, and we witnessed a display of God's undeniable handiwork. I confess, I listened to NPR radio. Is there anybody else that listens to NPR occasionally? 
Is there anybody that thinks NPR is of the devil? There are some. <laughs> I do listen to them from time to time because I like to listen widely and read widely. And I came across an interesting story when I was listening to Alabama Public Radio. It was a story about Cahaba lilies in Coosa County, Alabama. So several weeks ago, and I, I was so taken by this story that I informed my family that I didn't want anything for Father's Day except to go and see the Cahaba lilies in Coosa County, Alabama. We weren't able to go on Father's Day. But last Sunday afternoon, Jeannie and I took our trek to a, a, a place right outside of Rockford, Alabama. I was rather curious as I tracked down this man whose land through which the Hatchet Creek runs where these lilies are found in abundance and beauty. He was giving me instructions on how, that I, how I would find him and I go this way to Alexander City and turn here on highway such and such and go to Rockford and go straight and then take a right and go 2.7 miles and you'll see me. And I was like, I need more than that. He said, believe me, when you go 2.7 miles, you'll see me. And we went from a two-lane tarmac road to a one-lane tarmac road to a dirt road to a very small dirt road and right in the bend of that road there he was standing in front of his home. A county road. You know they have a lot of county roads that are still dirt in Alabama. I wasn't too much aware of that, but I understood why he gave me those kind of directions. So he, he took us from our vehicle into his pickup truck and drove us down some even more treacherous dirt roads to the shore, the, right along the, the, the banks of the Hatchet Creek, and there he had a kayak and a canoe. He got in the kayak, Jeannie and I got in the canoe, and he took us about 300 yards down Hatchet Creek to the place where you see the Cahaba lilies. Now, he had already told me that they were past their peak. But let me tell you, even past their peak, they are absolutely glorious. And these lilies are very rare because they have to have a certain set of conditions in, in which they grow. They have to have clean, flowing water. And there's a certain kind of moth that pollinates these particular lilies. And they bloom in full from mid-May to mid-June, but the ones that we could still see were outstanding. An undeniable evidence of God's beautiful handiwork. And if you want to see a picture that I took of Cahaba lilies, you have to go to our Facebook page. How many of you knew we had a Facebook page? Not enough of you. Now you know. Go look at the picture and like us on Facebook. Hidden jewels of God's handiwork, undeniable evidence of God's work in the world. Of course, the undeniable evidence of, of, of God's activity in chapter 4 was the man who was healed by John and Peter as they were going to the temple, a man who had been lame from birth, who sat at the, the gate called Beautiful. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, this man who was lame from birth was given wholeness and health, and he stood and danced and went into the temple courts. It was undeniable what had happened in this man's life. At one point, he was crippled, lame at the gate, and now he stands whole and healed. It was undeniable what God had done in his life. 
He was changed. He was new. He was this way at one time. And now He is another way. A new way. Whole. By the grace of God. But not only the crippled man is an undeniable evidence of the presence and activity of God, also the disciples. Because the disciples too, those followers of Jesus Christ, at one time were this way. Scared. Huddled. Insular. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon them, they become bold and courageous and active in the name of Jesus, the crucified and risen One in the world. And it is undeniable what has happened to these followers of Jesus, once disciples, now apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the best example of that transformation, the transforming power, the evidence of God at work in the world and in our lives is Peter. For there was Peter who promised Jesus, I will go with you anywhere. I will even die with you, Jesus. But it is only a few verses later that Peter says, Jesus, don't go that way. Don't talk like that. And Jesus informs Peter, you will deny me three times. And indeed, the Scriptures reveal that Peter, out of his fear, out of his own self-preservation, denied his Lord and his friend three times before the cock curdled his blood the evening of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Peter was this way. But now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is up and about and preaching boldly In every chapter we have encountered so far, preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus, preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was this way, and now He is a new way. It is undeniable the transforming power of God in His life. And God is doing something not just with the apostles and with Peter, but God is doing something with the whole community. The men and women who who joined the company of faithful saying, what must we do to be saved? Be baptized, every one of you, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the community is being transformed. Described in chapter 2, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Their minds were being shaped by the teaching of God's Word and what had been learned through Jesus Christ who taught the disciples. They are being shaped by their fellowship as they ate and shared meals together. They are praying together. They are pooling their resources so that none among them would have any need in body or in spirit. And they are worshiping together daily. And they are joyfully praising God. And the love of God in their fellowship is undeniable. The same is true if we look at the description of this community being transformed at the end of chapter 4. Just before our readings that that we encountered this morning. Chapter 4 again describes this transformed community that is being transformed as, as being about extravagant giving. They're selling their possessions. They're selling pieces of land. They are giving it to the apostles. And it says their their sole purpose is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and grace was upon them all. They are fearless to preach the message of salvation in Jesus' name. And the community is being transformed. It was disparate. It was small. 
It was unbelieving, but now it is unified and empowered and of one heart and of one mind. It was this way, now it is this way. It was one way, and now they are on the way. Because they will be known, as we continue to follow Acts, as the people of the way. At the end of chapter 4, we also learn of a man named Barnabas who had a nickname, the son of encouragement. And what we find out about Barnabas is that he sold a field. And he gave all the proceeds of the sale of that property to the apostles. In Barnabas, we see a characteristic of being transformed by the Spirit. As Barnabas was one who was sold out, as we say in our jargon today, who was sold out for the cause of Jesus Christ, or as one SEC team likes to say, Barnabas was all in. Barnabas knew there was no I in team. We see in Barnabas's gesture in the community of Jesus Christ, a community of compassion, of service, of sacrifice, of selflessness. They used to be this way, and now they are changed and being transformed. And so that brings us to chapter 5. We contrast all of what is happening in the community of the followers of Jesus Christ, and we come to this bizarre story, this troubling story of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you've closed up your Bible, you may want to pull it back out and refer to it, because I'm going to try to go through the rest of this chapter. So we encounter Ananias and Sapphira. They too, we are told, sold a piece of property. The proceeds of it was theirs. They could do anything they wanted to with it. It was not required that they give it all. But Ananias and Sapphira conspired to say that they sold the property for thus and such and give the, give the proceeds to the apostles, holding back part of what they gained from their sale. Yes, I believe in this community. Yes, I believe in, 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 in being generous. But you know, Ananias, you know, Sapphira, we aren't sure about what's going to happen in retirement. So let's hold back some of that for the old IRA to make sure we can get ourselves through. And so they conspire. And when they bring the gift, Peter confronts them. Because it has been revealed to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that they are not telling the truth. They are being hypocritical. They are rep representing themselves as, as one way when they are really another way. And Ananias is the first to come, and Peter confronts him. And being confronted with his own guilt and his, his dishonesty, he falls dead on the spot. Holy cow, is this a stewardship sermon text of all stewardship sermon text? If you don't give God a tenth, you're going to die on the spot, and we're going to check your W-2s. Where's the Stewardship and Finance Committee? That's a, maybe an idea we need to explore. And then, and then his wife, Sapphira, comes. She doesn't know what's happened to her husband, and she tells the same untruth. Reminds me of a story of a preacher who was interviewing with a pastoral search committee. An English teacher headed the committee and was very concerned that the future pastor spoke properly. 
When the hen is on the nest, does she sit or set? She asked the candidate, and the hopeful pastor was frustrated. He didn't know what to say, and his career was on the line, and finally he replied, it really doesn't matter if she's sitting or setting. What I want to know is this. When she cackles, is she laying or is she lying? Ananias and Sapphira were lying to God. Thinking they could represent themselves as one thing when in reality they were another. That has no place in this community that is being transformed. It is ruled by honesty and yes, even judgment amidst the grace. The guilt of their hearts stopped their hearts dead. The scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To be part of this new community involves some fear and trembling. God is not to be trifled with. God will not be mocked. And the news of what was happening in this community of the followers of Jesus spread like wildfire. And this new community, the verses that follow tell us, drew admiration. They were held in honor. But there were those who decided they weren't going to get near this thing, but just look at it from afar. But there are others who were still drawn to be followers. Are we being honest enough about what following Jesus entails? And are we being honest in ourselves as to who we are in light of who we know Jesus to be? And are we parading ourselves to be something that we are not? When the Scripture tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, who is righteous? No, not one of us. In light of this, are we all in? Are we sold out for Jesus? I'm glad, as I've reflected, that maybe I surrender all is not that much in our hymnody. It's not much in the repertoire of the hymns that we sing. I surrender all. All to Jesus I would render. I surrender all. Because I'm not sure that I can say that with full confidence in my own life. I don't know how true that is for me. How true is it for you that you have surrendered all? Are we guilty of the sin of hypocrisy? The healings and the manifestations in this community are demanding life change from those who are part of it. And we read that there are more evidences of the power of this resurrected Lord, this Holy Spirit, this living presence. And many are healed, and it riles up the authorities again. And the apostles are jailed again. But an angel miraculously releases them from prison again. 
and they are obedient to continue to teach and preach in the name of Jesus again. And so they are brought back into the presence of the council to be questioned and disciplined again. And the Sadducees and the chief priests say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you are filling Jerusalem with your teaching. Do you intend, they ask, to bring this man's blood upon us? Well, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what they are trying to do. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. To cover us with His precious blood that we might be washed of our sins and made whole by His righteousness. In verse 29, they say to the apostles upon being questioned, what do you think we are going to do? Obey you rather than God? After all that we have heard, after all that we have seen, after all that we have experienced, after all that we have learned, we are going to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know the forgiveness and the liberation from our sinfulness that we are being made new, they say to the members of the council. And they say, we've witnessed all of these things. And the Holy Spirit that God has given to us is allowing us to be obedient to the Spirit. I hear Martin Luther, the great reformer, his words as he was brought before his accusers and stood and made account for, for, for his actions and said, here I stand, I can do no other. I stand on God's Word and I stand on my experience of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so like the apostles, like Martin Luther, I believe that we too have been given a choice by the grace of God. Will we follow man? Will we follow God? Will we follow ourselves? Or will we follow God? Will we traipse after culture? Or will we follow God? Will we seek our own comfort or will we follow God? Will we go the broad way or will we follow the narrow way which leads to life? And Joshua said to God's people in the Old Testament as they stood on the verge of crossing the Jordan into the promised land, Joshua said, I set before you this day two paths, death and life, blessing or cursing. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. Will we choose to obey God or men or someone or something else? The apostles who experienced the risen Christ, they had no choice. For all who have experienced the risen Christ, there's really no choice. but to be obedient. And what is, what is asking obedience of us, of someone all about, but to see transformation occur? Why did my parents tie me up and beat me? I mean, excuse me. No, why did my parents discipline me? They did not. They probably didn't spank me enough. 
to teach me the difference between right and wrong, to shape me and mold me? Why does a coach demand such from players? Why does an officer demand such from his soldiers? Why does an elder demand such from the church? Why does God's Word demand such of us? Why does God's Son ask us to be obedient? But out of great love, God disciplines those whom He loves and asks us to be obedient to His life-giving Word and ways. Obedience is about transformation. It's about being changed. It's about changing our thinking, changing our direction, changing our lives. Repentance is a gift. When we come face to face with the reality of our own sinfulness, we, have, we are given a gift to repent and say, I will not go that way. I see the folly of my ways, and Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, how resistant we are many times to surrender our wills, to go and do what we think is best, all the while fooling ourselves. Many, many of us will find the way of Jesus Christ burdensome and hard and think it too strict and difficult. But when we surrender and are obedient, we find that in it is the only way to the fullness of life that is truly life. And our key to obedience comes with these three ingredients that I quickly propose to you. Our obedience is first born out of right thinking. We have to get our minds trained by the Word of God, by God's truth in His Word as revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so we must have right thinking first which then follows right actions. When we get our thinking right, then our actions will become right. And we will live in a way that is pleasing to God. For when we understand who God is, a God of love, a God of grace, extending Himself to us through Jesus Christ and the gift of His Holy Spirit, and understand it, the love of God in the crucified and risen Christ, we then can begin to live out of that truth. That is our right thinking, which leads to right actions, which shows us to be selfless and compassionate and self-giving and sacrificial in our love for others. Our obedience to God in training our minds and training our lives is our evidence of our love for God. And the the third part of living in obedience then brings us to right feelings. We're not going to feel very good about obedience from the outset. But as we train our minds and live in such a way that is obedient, then we feel in such a way that brings us joy. So it was with the apostles. After they had been questioned, after Gamaliel had said, get away from this, Don't mess with these men. That was a passive response to say, we're just going to let them do what they want to do. And after they had decided that's the best course of action, we'll just let it be as it's going to be. But the apostles committed themselves to their way all the more. And as they were released from the council that day, 
They were beaten. They were told once again, do not preach in this name. And as they left the council, the Scripture tells us they left rejoicing, beaten, rejoicing that they had been found worthy to suffer because of the name. And so with their minds right, their actions aligned, their feelings intact, they knew the joy of the Lord. And the next day they were back in the temple preaching and teaching without ceasing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all. I pray that we might know that same obedience today and in the days to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.